0: Welcome to another Whiskey, Web, and Whatnot. This is our third episode. We missed a little bit of time trying to do it weekly and didn't quite get there. But uh, if you've been enjoying what we've been doing so far, please subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us out and would love to have your support there. Um, so as always, I am joined by my partner in crime. This time, Charles William Carpenter III, not just W., which is interesting because my middle name is also William. I don't know if you knew that, but maybe I, I realized I that before and forgot. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, since we start all sessions with whiskey, it could contribute. <laughs>
0: yeah. But yeah, so this time we have a rabbit hole Derringer, which is a straight bourbon whiskey. So it's made in Kentucky then, I guess. Um, uh, yes,
1: this one is a Kentucky distiller. Um, although a misnomer that a lot of people assume is that bourbon must be made in Kentucky to be called bourbon.
0: That's not true, but it, it to say Kentucky bourbon, I guess it has to, I thought yeah, bourbon I had guess to be in, in Kentucky, but it doesn't say Kentucky bourbon. Says says straight bourbon. Yeah. So,
1: uh, it doesn't though. So yeah, the whole thing was that bourbon was, a. Uh, uh, invented in Bourbon County, Kentucky. Also uh, not necessarily true, but uh, yeah, no, it doesn't have to be distilled there. It's not on the list of federal regulations for labeling. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, if you're going to say Kentucky bourbon, then yes, obviously, but just bourbon can be made anywhere in the States, United States.
0: Fair enough. So this is twice finished in new toasted and charred American oak barrels. And oh my God, Pedro zim zimenez how do you pronounce that um well, that's not my forte in anyway their pronunciation uh, they sherry casks and it says it's never chill filtered as it should be right right yeah that's a
1: um i mean chill filtering i mean do you want to do it or not i'm not actually sure what that brings in terms of differentiation
0: Yeah, I I don't know either. I was hoping you might know since you're the whiskey guy. Yeah, that one, I uh, will look it up and we'll answer for any listeners the next week (laughs) because I have no idea. Fair enough. Um, Okay, so we're going to do a little experiment here with this one. We also got some Norland whiskey glasses and I don't really know what they're supposed to do. Do you understand the science behind these glasses, Chuck? (laughs) So the industry
1: standard for whiskey tasting is a Glencairn glass, which has kind of a tulip shape to it. And Mm -hmm. it's supposed to give you the aromas and uh, something to do with like science air and like the weight of ethanol versus the aromas of the whiskey itself. Like that shaped glass gets you more of uh, of the natural aromas without like getting the burn in your nose. So like a normal Mm. like rocks glass or or whatnot would, you know, you just get it all right there. And this shape where it's kind of like a pear fatter on the bottom narrows out and then, you know, has a bit of fanning at the very top is good for what they call nosing. So these are supposed to be that same idea. uh, And then has the addition that they are, they have two walls. So when you're holding the glass you're also not warming the whiskey any which just keeps it out of like a natural room temperature and doesn't affect that in that way i don't know i'm not sure yeah. how much difference that makes but it is kind of a neat glass they're hand blown and uh i opted for the um the black version they have like a matte black which has a really neat reflection when you look down into the glass. When it's empty, it's kind of clear to the black. And then when you put some whiskey in there, you get
0: this nice like amber color that that reflects up. Hmm. Yeah, I got the clear because I want to be able to see through it. But um, yeah, I'm interested to see the difference. I'm going to start with my normal um, cup of ice here with my whiskey, like I like to have my On the Rocks whiskey. And then we'll move to the, the Norland one and see how they compare.
1: I'll start mine in a very like snooty way of first smelling it. Then you smell in a similar way to wine. Anybody who like does the wine tasting where you put your nose over it and then you actually breathe in through your mouth. So you get light aromas that way.
0: Hmm. Learn so much new stuff here. <laughs> We're all about learning.
1: I mean you should give your first
0: impressions. Um Yeah, um so it's obviously different cuz it's it's not a rye this time, right? Yeah, it's, it's a normal just a bourbon. Yeah, so it it tastes kind of like your standard bourbon. Um I'm trying to I have a hard time picking out notes. Let me let me take another little sip here. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit of like honey flavor. It's definitely sweet-ish. I would say compared to typical bourbons, it's pretty good. So I would give it maybe six or seven tentacles.
1: Okay. So those are your initial impressions. Yeah, I get a lot of like cherry in there, maybe like Mm -hmm. a light vanilla um, as it sits in my mouth a little bit. Uh, it is a normal bourbon with a sherry cask finish. So having sweeter notes to it is uh, not really that surprising. This is a 93 proof, so not like super high. So it has like a very mellow finish. Also, when you get these like sherry or port cask finish, they, they tend to, uh, you know, to go down very smoothly with little to no burn. And I'm, I'm definitely getting that as well.
0: Yeah, it tastes to me, you know, now that you mentioned... Some of those flavors, it tastes almost like a old fashioned without any of the extra stuff to make that, you know, like, yeah, it's almost the same sweetness. Yeah. There's a lot of like sweet to it in terms of like
1: the whiskey kind of sweet, not straight sugar, but, um, and yeah, I would, I would agree with that. It has like a, a feeling of, of an old fashioned, maybe like a slight herbaceous kind of bit to it, but easy to drink. Um, I don't know if I would be, I'd go out of my way and, and, you know, tell all my friends, you must try this. I thought it was good. It's actually not, um, inexpensive. I believe this was like $80 for this particular bottle. So I found it interesting, but not something I'd want to repeat, uh, all that often. It was a little more like dessert-y to me. Like, Mm -hmm. um, that's where I would have it. I'd have a bit after dinner,
0: feels a little bit like dessert. And then that's good. Hmm. All right. So let's, uh, you, you were using this glass the whole time, right? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to try it now and see if I can tell a difference. Yeah. I mean, it tastes roughly the same. Um, I mean, it, it definitely has some different aromas, you know, on the nose, but Flavor wise, it's not really any different. But I'm I'm not a connoisseur, so keep drinking.
1: <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these things are uh, to a degree arbitrary. Like, you know, a cherry flavor to me might be almond to you, and you know, it's, uh, that's that's what I always find interesting about tasting notes in general. Is us all trying to find uh, um, common words to uh, describe what we are tasting, which is, you know, whiskey with sherry and wood and all these other grains and whatnot. And what is it close to? I mean, they don't stick cherries in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am interested. Um, I guess for our next one, we'll probably do the maple syrup one. You got that one, right? Uh, I did. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm curious to see if that will actually taste like maple syrup or if it will be kind of subjective to this like, you know, random sweet notes of different flavors.
1: Yeah. Uh, the preview and spoiler alert for for our listeners is that it's a I think Hudson Bay. It's a, the Hudson Distillery. I forget what it is, Hudson something. Yeah. And it is a rye but with like a maple finish. A yeah, maple it's, it's syrup just maple kind syrup of flavor. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like used maple syrup barrels. So, I mean, it's kind of like this where this is, uh, you know, used sherry casks and then they'll, you know, do an aging cycle in there. And usually like a month, six weeks, something like that. Nothing too
0: crazy. Yeah. So more to come on that next time. And then an extra, extra preview is the one after that we are going to be doing a Japanese whiskey, which I've never had Japanese whiskey before. And we're going to have a guest, uh, Chris Garrett from the Ember core team will be joining us. So all you Ember folks like myself out there, uh, definitely tune into that one, but on a non Ember at all note, although we did just have a, uh, a blog post about using Ember and Glimmer with some serverless stuff. Um, We're going to chat a little bit about some different serverless things now and learn some from Chuck about the serverless ways.
1: Yes, I will try and fool you all that I know anything about it. Um, (laughs) So over this past year, uh, with some of our consulting engagements, we've had uh, more and more exposure with um, the serverless framework in particular uh, and considering serverless functions to... um, to be in place of uh, maybe like some standard node applications, APIs in particular. And that's really where I've utilized it the most recently, which uh, some of these sometimes people will call it a function as a service. Um, And then serverless just happens to be the framework that makes it really easy to put these together and be somewhat vendor agnostic as to where you deploy them. Um, although I have only done so in AWS. Uh, it's nice for an API in particular um, because so in the first application it was just a GraphQL uh, API server, and it's an easy way to handle authentication uh, around that um, using just regular like JWT tokens and um that being an authorizer into your API. And then everything from there is like pretty standard, straightforward JavaScript. So that's really nice. Um, the other bit that I've utilized it a lot lately is we've been working on API for swatch, which is the Shipshape product that is a desktop application for managing uh, color swatch palettes. And we want to attach an element to that that allows users to not only save those locally to their own machine, but they sync those across machines. Um, and doing a normal, like, REST API where you can separate... The, um the crud operations by endpoint and then you know look at utilization there and not have to fire up a full server every time somebody wants to create new palettes or get a list of their palettes and and you can really a monitor utilization there and uh and be like make things a lot faster because you can separate things into almost like little microservices, but they're just simply functions oh, okay someone's hitting an endpoint and they want to create uh, a new palette well, you know, we, we just have that very narrow scope that gets kicked off and does a one very simple thing. So, um,
0: so you would say the benefits there then from what I'm understanding are smaller functions. So it's kind of faster to boot up and you don't have to have the entire API running. And it also kind of helps scope it so that if you're working on that one endpoint, you can do it in one file and you don't have to care about what the rest of the API may or may not be doing.
1: Yeah, so there's there's twofold there, right? Like it's the simplicity in just the service itself or the API itself that like you can you can debug things, you can log things, all within like the scope of that one singular function. Uh, the other side of it is like potentially a cost perspective with you know as users grow you would have like in the AWS realm, you'd have an EC2 instance and you'd be trying to right size that based on the number of users and and concurrent hits and whatnot. And, um, you know, and it's always running to a degree. So it's always a, you know, it's always a cost pool. Mm
0: -hmm. And then
1: the more users you get, it just kind of scales up. So it's never at zero while a serverless setup, that kind of architecture could be at zero. Because if you're just not, you know, you don't you're trying to put a product out and you don't have uh, many users, then it's it's nothing to get this going. And especially within free tiers, you can actually scale up quite a bit before you have to start to think about, um, you know, a greater expense because it's always going to scale up for you in, in in their utilization, like they they can give you as much as you need, and so that's kind of nice. Um, and you don't really have to think about that, like scaling the size of your containers and running an Express app that might get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, uh, from a database perspective, there's a lot of speed benefits too uh, on the serverless side because it's essentially, you know, uh, you have your always available database and then your function as needed.
0: So do they have it set up to where it scales automatically for you? Like if, you know, a hundred thousand people hit your endpoint at once, does it ensure that they're all going to run? Okay. So
1: this is where we're gonna get a little out of my depths, but the way that I understand <laughs> it from a real layman's perspective is that you have basically unlimited connections and you don't have to like I mean you can for EC2 instances. And then like, say your like Postgres setups and all of those things, like you can set up auto scalers and you can have your actual server instance, you know, kind of right size. And then you can set up strategies to, for it to auto scale and all of those things. But like, basically you can take in whatever, you know, uh, whatever number of connections within your actual function and then with it hitting your database the dynamo database versus a regular like uh sql style database like it's it connects differently and perhaps we'll have to like further this conversation because that's that's a good one and i i recall reading that like The Dynamo connection is just a normal, like, HTTP connection. And so it's, like, you know, it can take tons of concurrent users Mm -hmm. versus the scaling required through, like, ECT instances and and then your, like, database connection from there. So it's really intended
0: to be very hands-off in that way. Okay. So then... How do they charge you for usage? Is it based on how long the function runs or is it like number of calls or? Uh, How long it runs. So,
1: yes. And it's interesting because within the serverless framework, there are a number of plugins and you can like run your function locally and then like test operations locally. And it'll tell you like, oh, would have been charged, you know, the time duration of function and, you know, charges this time. And it's really like a small fraction. Uh, and like I said, when when you're dealing with like early stage applications, it's pretty great because you can do a whole lot and stay within uh, the free tier or like really low cost regardless.
0: Yeah, so I think similar follow-up to what I was just talking about, but uh, what happens if people are just spamming that API. Right. So, you know, if you have a server that's always running, you're going to have however many number of users you support. Maybe it auto scales some, but at some point it's going to start dropping people. And then if this doesn't, if someone's just clicking a button, you know, a hundred thousand times, they have a bot doing that just to kind of maliciously make you have to pay a ton of money, you know, like how do you guard against something like that? Yeah. I think that's a good question. And essentially through
1: how you protect your API, you get like that same level there. Um, so what we're doing with ours is we are, we're not actually even engaging the lambdas uh, unless someone is an authorized user. So we check authorization uh, And so it's not a simple like JWT authorizer function on one of the lambdas that could get hit a bunch of times and then, you know, could uh, incur cost. But actually we have like a a number of layers there. Uh, AWS calls them authenticators. We are in the Cognito user pool. And essentially like if you don't validate from the user pool, you never even hit uh, the API gateway and you don't even get to the Lambda itself to run the function. So if one of our authorized users was doing that, obviously we'd have metrics behind that. We'd understand um, who is doing it and then can react more specifically. So you can't have sure. like random Joe spam your stuff. And let's just say whatever reasons, like someone was able to get the uh, Cognito user credentials and without like diving too much into that. And I confuse myself all the time (laughs) on it, but like, so you have like user pools and you have, um, there are two different things there and there's like, you know, a user pool and then like this, like credentials that come out of that. So it's like you have your actual user that is registered with your application and then you have, uh, this other thing, like once, this says it's okay. Then it gives you like some temporary credentials over here and then allows you to do some things. And then you have to sign using those credentials for every hit. So it like, and that only lasts like five minutes. So you have like your early credentials, you get your token, you ask for um, some other like authentication uh, information. You go through an encryption signing thing and your first token is like an hour And all the way to this other thing, there's so many layers there and there's this other thing that you have to sign and create for your singular, uh, uh, you know, API request. And it's signed to what am I trying to hit? What is the operation method, you know, and that lasts five minutes. So even if someone was like lucky enough to like take it all the way to that bit, well, you know, it's pretty short-lived, you know.
0: Yeah, I guess I was wondering, you know, we've been having issues with Why are there so many different requests to sign all these different things and like so many steps here, but that makes a lot of sense that, you know, you're guarded at the lowest level for five minutes. And then, you know, there's, there's all these hoops you have to jump through. And so at any level you could revoke their access basically and, and contain your problem, which is, is pretty nice. I didn't think about that
1: yeah i mean in the security realm as we know we are quite interested in like these uh there's a number of layers there that like ensure that a you're protecting the identity of the person as much as you can because we're not passing around a jWt token that could include some of their um, pii information and uh, people could try to break that down and get emails and all of that like that's That's obscured pretty early in the process, like right after sign in. And then, you know, you move into this, which are all these other operations that are just simply around saying, like, I'm a person that uh, that's okay to interact with this application. And and then, you know, I'm going to make a few changes there, but uh, without, you know, implicating themselves and without really exposing ourselves and, and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of cost where like somebody does some crazy like DDoS attack or
0: something yeah so now that we know how to keep all of this stuff super secure, we can build a a cryptocurrency trading app right <laughs> exactly because <laughs> that's what people are doing these days. don't you want to know about what to buy and yeah like what's the just next look at uh, coin? just look at what Elon Musk is tweeting that day right whatever he mm-hmm. tweets will go up like a hundred percent and that's all you need to know yeah it's yeah it's, it doesn't hurt I mean. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, it's
1: really interesting because, like, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, I bought Dogecoin as a joke because my brother had said, like, oh, haha, isn't this so funny? This, like, silly coin. Like, I don't know. I have, like, $40 worth. Like, I, like you know, if it goes up, like, an increment of a cent, like, isn't that kind of funny? You know, like, just because it, it was intended and created to do nothing. <laughs> Elon disagrees and shows how he can easily manipulate and disrupt the market, as he may or may not have done on other occasions. And, you know, it
0: goes up over cents and, you know, thanks. I can buy another bottle of this whiskey now. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a lot of crazy stuff going on in the market, like all the GameStop stuff and um, all the stocks associated with that. Like, I think it was uh, AMC and Nokia and... I think even BlackBerry, like I didn't know BlackBerry was still around, but for some reason. Yeah, I have, I think I listened to some like Recode Decode
1: a year or two ago about, you know, BlackBerry and their return to I think they were trying to be a software company again for a while. And then they did come back with some like classic hardware because some people were just diehard about, you know, the tactile buttons and just liking that interface better. Um, I mean, I know for the longest time it was uh, highly embraced by like serious lockdown agencies like the government and some financial institutions. So, I mean, I guess, you know, there's interest in different places. Not everybody wants the latest Apple hotness.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually really like the physical buttons myself. I used to always have like before phones were super smart and you would have like an LG whatever and it like flipped open in the middle and you would have a big keyboard. Like I mm, love that. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to type, but yeah, I don't know how you would get that on a, a modern phone really. <laughs> uh, I don't think I, re- I, I might've attached a Bluetooth keyboard to my phone
1: before just to see if I could. And then <laughs> You yeah, know, I guess you write can write a blog that. post or something. Yeah. Yeah. You can do that. I, I don't recall. I think it was like I traveled a whole bunch more and had a Bluetooth keyboard and, and tried that process out. But like, you know, the screen size for
0: reading isn't really great to like type out long form. Yeah. Fair content. enough. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, I've been uh, experimenting with some cryptocurrency stuff and learned a lot and accidentally spent a lot of money um, yeah. as I do, you know, uh, but well, we won't focus on the negatives
1: here. Uh, there are highs and lows. I mean, I got sucked into Ripple a couple of years ago, and I really hope the uh, the SEC kind of goes well with that. <laughs> but uh, that aside, um, yeah, it's all you know, it's all a risk to a degree, and who knows long you know in the long term how it could work out for you. But I'd love to hear more about what you learned.
0: Yeah, so I don't know if you've heard about um, they call it like a DeFi platform, uh, like decentralized finance, I guess. And that's kind of what a lot of the, the tokens are, are based around. But there's some of these platforms where basically their token is given to you as interest for you giving them your coins to loan out to other people. So it's like a money market for cryptocurrency. And it sounds really easy. Like, okay, I'll give you, you know, let's say a couple of Ethereum, whatever, and you can loan it out to people and you'll give, uh, so one of the, the big ones is called compound. So like, we'll talk about compound as, as the use case here. So it's like, all right, you give compound some Ethereum and they give you the, the markets fluctuate. So if you, if a lot of people give them Ethereum, they start giving you less interest, which makes sense, like supply and demand. Um, so I I signed up. And went to send them some, like I wanted to try like a hundred bucks worth or whatever and like see how it goes and found out that, uh, and I should have known this, like looked into Ethereum at all, but there are gas Mm -hmm. fees for every transaction, right? So Mm -hmm. if you just want to send a hundred bucks worth of any currency over to this thing where you're going to get interest, they want to charge you like $130 in gas fees like more than you're sending over there. So <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, so maybe I'll do more than a hundred dollars to like make it economical. And then like sent things back and forth to a bunch of different places. Cause you can't do it straight from Coinbase. So I went to like Coinbase to Coinbase wallet to compound to, and then like compound wants to set up a separate wallet and then wants to charge you a fee to like set that up. Then a fee to like actually send the stuff. And basically, if to get all the way in there, you're going to pay hundreds of dollars in fees. So I'm like halfway through this process and realize I've already lost like a hundred bucks for no reason. So I'm just going to send it back. So of course you pay another hundred dollars to send it back. (laughs) And like, Oh man, it was such a mess, but it's such a cool concept. Like I would love a easier to get into way to like give them some coins and get some interest on it because I think that's kind of, future right like you know the less physical money we have to print out and the more decentralized we can get the better it will be for everyone to use i feel like yeah yeah
1: i agree with that i actually i think that a cryptocurrency in terms of like the manifesto of having a universal currency is like a really great idea i think that where it is right now where it's an investment vehicle is kind of counterintuitive to that because you know if that's the case then like if i'm gonna go buy a pizza or if i'm gonna order you know whiskey from japan it should kind of universally be the same but the issue is is that the defined value of that is all over the place and so if it's bitcoin or doge or whatever else it's like you know five doge does not equal five bitcoin and You wouldn't pay either for a pizza at this point, right? So So that that's the fallacy there, like right, and it's intention. Like blockchain aside, I think blockchain has a lot of value that can be acted upon today, but crypto, you know, utilizing the blockchain is is has some issues.
0: Yeah. So so twofold answer to that: one, there are stable coins. There's a USD coin and like one called DAI, I don't know what DAI stands for, D-A-I, but they follow the dollar, so they're always worth about a dollar. Like sometimes they'll accidentally go up to maybe like a dollar and a couple cents, but they always come back to just worth a dollar. So that's something you could use to buy common goods pretty easily. Um, Obviously, the downside to investing in those is you're not going to be making any money because they're going to stay around a dollar. But yeah. they they are easier actually. You can hook them up in Coinbase to get like two percent interest a year, which is pretty good. Um, so so that kind of thing could be a more stable kind of tied to the dollar way to get in, get some interest, and not have all these crazy swings and all of your coins. Um Okay. So
1: so there's there's actually three paths and we're talking about there. So there's one which is a global currency that is fast to transact upon across, uh, a, you know, financial markets or whatever, right? So the, uh, the like, the problem is, like, changing USD to yen to whatever, uh, like, okay, let's just say for that sake, like, yen is the Chinese currency. So you have to, like, convert your currency and then purchase in that. Yen is Japanese, isn't in it? That mar- Isn't it okay? Uh, Don't quote me on that. That you could be right. So anyway, and I think that that is the same issue here, though. So first of all, like the idea, the ideal of disrupting currency as we know it means no longer having this trust market, right? Like we just have to agree upon, you you know, this centralized currency. I don't know how you attach value to that. So there's a lot of like a lot of questions along the way, but like, so is it a currency or is it an investment vehicle? First of all, so that's like right now it's definitely an investment vehicle. And then like, what are you trying to do with it? And then low risk, high risk. So what you're saying are low risk alternatives versus potential high risk alternatives, like, you know, getting into a Bitcoin now versus two months ago is different, but it was always high risk regardless. And if you get into it now, even though it It's looking good as an investment vehicle. It's still not turned into a currency. So yeah, crypto as a whole is kind of feeling like an unregulated stock market. Yeah. Now, recently, we know that even a regulated stock market has its holes. (laughs) So, and I think we could probably like put a pin in this one for for another time, but I was reading about naked shorts recently and it's, yeah, and it's not as dirty as it sounds kids. Um, it's essentially where like, you know, the, the wall street's supposed to self-regulate to a degree because they are the members of the board that do the regulation and that have been in charge for like 10 years, putting together a database to stop the naked short. And, you know, doesn't happen of course, because they'd rather pay a fine than put in, put in to play a system
0: that stops this big moneymaker But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know the, the full scope of that, but I think that, that's what was happening with GameStop, right? And and they basically mm. shorted like 140% of the available shares, which is not a thing you can do because 100% is the max number of <laughs> shares. And then yep. so they did that. And then if it's, if it's naked, that means you're not covering it, right? So they had no contingency. So like- Yeah, and if. And if anybody sort of like
1: calls it and says, I want to have the, the, the stock, like they don't have it to actually present, like it never actually lives anywhere. So it's just make believe it's just shorting this thing, you know, ad nauseum and having uh, this whole sort of like back channel where you're able to keep doing this and like passing back, I think it's called like a dark pool, something like that, like the big, financial institutions have like a dark pool of these things that they can sort of pass back and forth as needed. Also like, right. And you're like, uh, in, in your normal, like consumer has no access to any of these things. So, you know, what, what the GameStop folks did is essentially like continually dilute that pool. And then, like you said, supply and demand at the end of the day, like
0: really screwed all of those those shorts right so they were on the hook for buying 140 percent of shares all shares were balled up because everyone on reddit bought them up so they could charge whatever price they want basically was the idea but then of course because wall street always wins like they back and forth traded enough and like enough people got out that it wasn't really as resounding of a success as it should have been and then of course you know robin hood stops trading and all kinds of stuff went down there, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, to a degree, I I have to say like, so, you know, Robin Hood's mission and then the reality, right? Like that changes as you become successful. Uh, you can't completely slight them for that, but like, yeah, they basically were heavily exposed and it's either like, do we potentially go out of business out of this out of this game of a pool of individual investors or do we just like pause and try and right side ourselves and let, you know, let the market fix itself, which essentially means like the big players get it in order and that's what they did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, being named Robin hood and screwing over all the, (laughs) the individual investors kind of Mm. doesn't, doesn't work well in your favor for your image, but um, yeah, the marketing is a little wrong there. Yeah, there's been actually a lot of more surges this week in GameStop. I don't know if you've been seeing that, but. Um, I, I saw a little bit about
1: it. I am, uh, I, I don't have the appetite for that kind of gambling. So, you know, I take my little wins and or losses uh, and, you know, I'm cool with that. Like a little bit here and there. You go to the casino, you lose a couple hundred dollars and you walk away. That, that's my game. Oh, I go to Or you the win casino, a couple hundred dollars. Exactly. And that's really, that's, that's, uh, so for anyone who doesn't know me, I am a former blackjack dealer. So I just know how that game goes and I'm, I'm happy to take the little bits.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm so impressed. Uh, Rob and I went to, to Canada and they we went to a casino there and they had a blackjack dealer who I'm already impressed when they can count everyone's cards like instantly because when face cards are involved and like, I don't know what numbers are and like, I just can't do it quick. But this guy would do it both in English and French. Ooh. Like, cause there's people can speak either. And I'm just like, yeah. wow, I, I can't even add up in English that fast. <laughs> well,
1: so I'll tell you from my experience there is it becomes pattern memorization and it's just secondhand. You're not actually doing any math at a certain point. I mean, so because you have to do it with the chips too. And, and you know, they teach you a lot of techniques in terms of how to like pay out and take and all that kind of stuff like quickly. And eventually you just do it secondhand or not even really thinking about it. So it's the same thing. It's sort of like, oh, I don't have to count your stack. I just have to match your stack. Can I just put a big stack there and sweep back? And I know, great, I've paid you out correctly, that kind of stuff. And pattern match, cards too. And it's sort of like, you know, this, this, and this means whatever. And so now I know four or above, you're done, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it, yeah, it's a lot easier than you think when you repeat it for eight hours, you know, <laughs> at night on night and, you know, Uh, okay. And then it's actually pretty simple because we're just trying to get to 21 or above and that's all we care about.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. So I've always, you know, heard multiple times that you've been a blackjack dealer, but I haven't heard like where or how you got into that or like give us some backstory on that. Okay. Well, (laughs)
1: um, a long time ago. So I moved from Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati. Uh, I actually lived in Cincinnati before I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, in 2000. And, uh, at that time I was just kind of exploring life and career and keeping things pretty loose and got a job at a casino as a bartender. I don't know who doesn't like drinks. That's fun. There's entertainment, you know, it's a little different and interesting. Uh, I was a bartender at a casino here for like a year and a half. And then there was some legislation changes. And cause at that time, Casinos only had poker and then slots. I believe that was it. And they introduced some additional card games through legislation. The big one was blackjack. They offered free training and then you were able to audition for a spot. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this sounds good. Um, Different and was pretty lucrative through tips because we were able to keep our own at that point. And you just, you know, talk to people, be nice run the game, uh, just make sure you follow the rules and
0: and and roll through it and did that for a couple of years. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up is like, were tips better at the bar or as a blackjack dealer? As a blackjack dealer, they were way more stressful. So,
1: you know, tips at the bar are pretty straightforward. As you know, anyone who's kind of done the bar and restaurant scene, You know, you make, you make a cocktail, you make a sale at the time, you talk to the person, make a couple dollars each round and it's just rinse and repeat with blackjack. They could hand you a tip, but most of the time your players would want you to play with them. So they would place this, you know, a chip on the edge of the circle. And it was like, we play together as if I have anything to do with a, their decisions or B (laughs) the cards that come out. But, uh, especially if you're like, you're, you're there a bunch and, you know, you know, some kind of fundamentals, like the odds are never really in your favor, but still there's things that people would do. You're just like, oh, crazy because people could bet hundreds of dollars for you. Mm-hmm. And then if you win, you win. So the, the thought is I win, you win. Let's play together. I'm like, great. Can I tell you what to do? No. Oh, all right. Here we go. So it's like you know, very I got stressful. nineteen. I should hit, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: Like there were plenty of seventeen hitters, which you know your odds from seventeen on go way down. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting, like, it's it's just an interesting kind of like world and and ecosystem and sort of like. I don't know, as, as I've said a couple of times now, I don't really have the stomach for that kind of gambling. And then when my own welfare versus what they're doing and I don't know, I don't judge people coming in there and, and what they're spending, but you know, like maybe you have this extra income, maybe you don't, maybe we're both stressed and on the hook. I don't know. <laughs> but like if someone is betting like, you know, three, $400 for you, and then you can make double that in that moment, you're obviously hoping for the best, but you're just pulling cards out of yeah. a machine. It does know? make
0: it a little more exciting for you, though.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me take your next paycheck and put it in the stock market and make it exciting for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. And Fair there was point. times where I walked away with like very little money. And there was times, you know, not, not often, but like there were times where it was like, wow, I just made that amount of money in 60 seconds. And it was really exciting. And it was a crazy adrenaline boost. But then, you know, it was just such a roller coaster emotionally. And it just wasn't for
0: me. Fair enough. Well, that's all I got for this one, I think. So, uh, everybody. Yeah. Uh, Definitely subscribe. If if you like what you've heard, you know, hit hit us up with more questions about Chuck's blackjack career, if you have them. Um, and yeah, always don't invite me to a casino. (laughs) Yeah. Always open to, uh, suggestions on whiskeys and topics. If you guys have them, would love to hear from some of you and thanks for listening.